G'day, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of Throw Another Podcast on the Barbie. As always, I am your host, Chris. Today on the show, we have a bit of a special event. It is the first international podcast recorded online. Lindsay, my guest, she's in Sydney, Australia, and I am in Sweden. I think the audio came out great, so I'm very happy with it. I hope you find it inspirational or you find something to take out of it. Lindsay has been traveling for many years. She's lived in all different countries. She's backpacked. And I found her to be a very fun and interesting person to talk to. And she has lots of great advice for any of you eager travelers out there interested in making the move. So I hope you enjoy this one. Have a great day. Cheers. G'day, Lindsay. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Of course. I'm very happy to have you on. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a little wanderlust tippy child. So I grew up in Oregon and Boston and then bounced around to Canada, bounced around to El Salvador, Chile, Miami, um, backpacked through Central America, the Caribbean, and now I'm living in Sydney, Australia. And how old are you now? I just turned 31. Yeah. Uh, how were you growing up? Were you a big outside person, always wanting to, do you always dream about traveling the world? Yes and no. So I grew up in a family where we had family all over the world anyway, mostly the US and Canada. And I was quite fortunate to be able to travel in my local community within the States, visiting that family and friends. I think my family always had a bit of a global mindset in how they tried to raise me and my brother. So it wasn't necessarily yeah. a dream of wanting to travel overseas and go explore the world. It was just... And rather than having TVs, we didn't have TVs growing up. It was, okay, you know, Linz, go outside, go play in the dirt, go explore things. So yeah. I kind of always just grew up with a little bit of a curiosity. Um, and that just, that stemmed from my local community and then meeting people that had been overseas and had some pretty f- profound experiences. And I guess I wouldn't necessarily say it was intentionally wanting to travel overseas as much as just trying to continue to explore and meet new people and those yeah. interactions took me overseas and what age did you start really considering the idea of living overseas because you went to university i did so i went to university in canada and it was probably the first time my dad was living overseas so i i lived in holland when i was little little like one year old so i don't remember it mm-hmm. but the first time he was living overseas that i remember i was about 11 years old So he was living in Germany at the time and my brother and I were able to go and visit him and it was just a totally different world. I don't speak German. So it was the first time I was fully immersed in a culture where I couldn't communicate. And um, as an 11 year old found that fascinating. So once you'd fit, you went through university Mm -hmm. and then once you finished, where was the first place you headed off to? So the first place I went off to was El Salvador. So that I was kind of still in university at the time, but it was on my exit strategy out. So I hadn't yet graduated. It was during a spring break vacation. Um, I knew I was going to be leaving, but that was the first overseas travel, I would say, after university, even though technically mm-hmm. it was spring break. Leading up to the move, did you feel any anxiety or any hesitation to move? That Just the idea of living away from all you've ever known in your family and everything? Did you feel any of that or hesitation? Or No, I didn't. So I think my up- 
upbringing was a bit different than a lot of people in the sense that I grew up in a family that was divorced. So my mom lived in Boston. My dad lived in Oregon. And Mm -hmm. by the time my mom moved to Boston, I was 10. So growing up in Oregon until I was 10 and then from 10 to 18, I was splitting the year between the two of them anyway. So I never really had this solid base where you were living there 24-7 the entire year. I was splitting it anyhow. So going to school outside of the States in Canada wasn't a huge jump because I was I was used to being away from my parents and my family half the year anyway. The only difference was now I was right. on my own. So leaving yeah. university to kind of continue that journey rather than going home, um, it was a pretty easy decision for me because I didn't necessarily have that home base. It was, I could go back to Boston. I could go back to Oregon. They're both home. Right. So how do you choose? Maybe you just choose somewhere totally different and then you don't have to make the decision. Yeah. No, I never really thought about it like that because my parents were divorced when I was about eight, I think. Mm. And I didn't have a huge hesitations when I was moving here to Sweden yeah, or right. anything like that. Like I was a bit worried about like missing my friends and things like that, but I never... I've always moved around after school and I never really had a home base either. Whereas my family's all over the world. Like mum and dad lived in separate cities most of my life. So I understand where you're coming from there. I think it's a really interesting way of looking at it. I never yeah. really thought about it like that, the way you look about it. I think it's, it's when I try to describe it to people, they're like the first question that people ask you, they're like, you know, what's your name and where are you from? Where's home? I'm like, yeah. where's home? Yeah. home? Home, you know, is such a fluid topic, right? It's, Home for me is wherever I'm sleeping or feel at peace at that time. Um, so for me, growing up, it was it was that we were you, even with my family, we were we were camping, we were backpacking, we were traveling. So, albeit it was within the states, not internationally, but I grew up in a family that was very aware of the fact that there's things that exist beyond your front door and beyond your community and your zip code or your postal code. So I didn't really view it as leaving home as much as continuing that journey of the fluidity of what home is. I guess Mm. that's true when you have a traditional family where you live in a city and you grow up in a city, you go to high school, and then you go off to a different city, you'll always say, hey, that's my hometown. Whereas I guess for you and for me, to a a sense, Mm -hmm. it's not like that because... We moved, like I moved around a lot and I live with my dad and my mom and been from all over. So I never really thought about that until you, you, you talked about it. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's worked for me. People are like, where are you from? And I say, I'm from the world. No, just <laughs> pick good. one. That's a good answer. You can say <laughs> that because you've been, you seem like you've been all over. Yeah, there was one time where my passport had like, I don't know, it had probably three different visas in it, student visas, work visas, tourist visas. And I was like, I don't know. Here, just take it and figure it out as I go through the customs. I don't know what you want to do with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but how great is it to travel now in this time, whereas mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago, it's a lot harder. I mean, now it's so easy to get a visa. You just jump on the internet. You can get a visa in like a week and a half in some places, even three or four days sometimes. It's just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a lot cheaper now to fly and travel and a lot more competition. So I think it's a really interesting time to live abroad and mm-hmm. have that life, especially the way you've lived. Mm-hmm. So moving back to El Salvador, uh, what was the choice there with El Salvador? Was that a conscious choice or that was? Yeah, so that trip um, that trip happened because I 
So I was, I graduated from Vancouver. I wanted to stay in Vancouver. That was my goal, but I couldn't do that because I work in sports and I wanted to go into athletic training and sport physio and they didn't have a program for me. So I knew I had to leave. I was really involved with the athletics department within my university working for the various teams and the men's basketball team, they would do an annual trip to El Salvador to help build houses and community centers. So one of their alumni had started this project, basically wanting to give the athletes the opportunity to help a less developed nation, a less privileged community, and give them the opportunity as people that might have come up quite privileged to see what it's like to not have that. So Bill started this project. Um, I had a couple of friends that were on the men's basketball team that had attended, and I approached them. I was like, I love that. I want... I want to learn more. I want to be a part of that. I was working for the recreation department at the time. Um, So University of British Columbia has a very comprehensive intramural and recreation sport program. So I was volunteering with Mm -hmm. them and I wanted to expand that athletics trip to include recreational volunteers as well. At the time that Bill was running it, it was isolated just to the men's basketball team. He expanded the project to allow it to be all of varsity athletics, but that's still a very niche community. And as someone that was involved with the varsity athletics from the medical standpoint, I saw the impact that it had on those athletes being able to go to El Salvador and be part of these build projects. And I felt like there was a logical link with the sport and recreation department to include the volunteers and the people that worked with that department, even though they weren't varsity athletes. So I approached Bill and I was like, hey, uh, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. I think your project is fantastic. Yeah. How can I expand it? How can I work with you, learn from you to expand it? So his uh, first how old, answer. How old were you then when you came in and how old were you then? Um, at that point, I would have been, I would have been 21 at that point. Okay. So it's, I was about to graduate and was just kind of in this, I, I'd applied to go into the Peace Corps. That's what I was planning to do after I graduated from university um, right. and decided that that wasn't in the cards for me at the time based on opportunities that were available. They recruited me, they accepted me, but they didn't have a placement to match my, basically to match my skill set. So I was like, all right, well, I want to do something. How can I, how can I positively contribute to my world community here? Um, Mm -hmm. so Bill and I had a chat and he said, fantastic. I want you to be a part of it. Let's work together. Let's figure this out. But the first thing that you need to do is you need to go there. (laughs) You need to go there and be part of a project. So I applied to be part of a project in El Salvador. It wasn't the one directly linked with him, but he wanted me to go and experience it on my own before becoming a, a a co-leader effectively with him. So that's why I went and that's why El Salvador with the intention the following year to lead my own team down there um, alongside of Bill. So he was basically leading the varsity athletes and I'd be leading the intramural recreational volunteers. And so you said with the intention of leading the next year, is that what you went ahead and did the next year? I did. So I was in El Salvador the first time for three weeks So that was the trip on my own. Um, And I remember coming out of it absolutely loving the experience. First of all, I was the only one on my team that spoke Spanish. So that was really cool in and of itself to be kind of the 
you know, the translator and the go between. Mm -hmm. But I remember coming out of it. And when we were doing all the debriefing, everyone on my trip had these profound experiences. And it was like, my life changed, I'm going to go home and change this and change this. And I remember being really disappointed because I didn't get that. I didn't get that kaboom, wow moment that everyone else did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got back to Vancouver and I was telling it to one of my friends and Joe, he had been on the trip with Bill the previous year. And I was telling him about this and he's like, Linz, look, your profound moment is the fact that you already view the world like that. You, You didn't need to go somewhere to see that you already have a global mindset of how you can positively impact other people. Those people did, Mm -hmm. you didn't. So that is your profound impact. That is your profound moment. And I was like, oh, you are, you know, you're a genius. How, how did I not know (laughs) that, you know? Um, But that was the intention of that trip. So then the following year, I, I'd already graduated from University of British Columbia. I'd moved to Miami for grad school. So Bill and I were working remotely together to make this trip happen the following year. And then we ended up basically a year to the date of when I got back from the first one. Um, He was Mm -hmm. leading the athletes and I was leading the volunteers. And we went down there and brought about 20 people down um, to build things. And it was really cool. We were working in a community, built a house, built part of the foundation of a community center for sports and recreation. And, um, yeah, it it was a fantastic experience on a lot of different levels, um, from meeting the local people then to also leading volunteers that had, a lot of them had never left Canada. So that was really cool in and of itself. So I guess you say you, you're a, a citizen of the world, mm. but in the sense that you moved to El Salvador, or you lived there and you did this thing and you built houses and that's an amazing thing to do. We then hooked on the idea of continuing, oh, I love living here and I love living away from my home country in a sense mm-hmm. or from what I grew up with. Were you hooked and like, oh, I'm going to keep doing this and doing this and keep going to different places? Were you, as that, at that point, were you thinking, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to keep traveling the world. Yes and no. So I, yes, in the sense of I, I was there and I was like, okay, sweet. I know that traveling is always going to be a part of me. That's, that's going to be a non-negotiable. I want to start making that a consistent part of my lifestyle, whether it be going on projects or going to visit or doing something, but something that something for me, isn't just going there. It's going and meeting the people. It's getting to know the culture. It's actually integrating yourself into the life is if you were living there. That to me is what traveling is. No, in the sense of when I went to grad school in Miami, the only thing I wanted to do was get back to Vancouver. I loved it there. And so that's where I wanted to end up. So I knew that traveling was always going to be a part of my life. Um, But in the sense of after that trip, did I come back and said, okay, I want to live here, 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 here? Not Mm -hmm. yet. Um, in the back of my head, it was still wanting to have Vancouver be that home base and then allowing that, well, I guess that home base with asterisks, but that home base and then kind of bridging off and going and traveling, but always coming back to Vancouver. That's that's where my mind was at at that point. Uh, so Miami and then you thought you'd go back to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. What changed in the interim there that led you to where you are now and what, what you've done in the meantime? Yeah, so I went to grad school in Miami. So I was at Florida International for Athletic Training or Sport Physio, as a lot of people in the world would potentially know it as. Um, and I, as I said, my intention was get, to get back to Vancouver. 
And then it was Christmas before I was due to graduate. I was working, one of my placements was in a physical therapy clinic. And I remember it's probably Christmas Eve was probably when it was. I got a phone call from Ron, who is my clinical supervisor. He said, hey, Linz, um, what do you think about a comprehensive fitness and physio clinic in a third world country? Do you think that's going to work? And I said, well, mm. I don't really like the word third world, first of all, I, it's, that's not a, I don't really like that in my vocabulary, but in a developing nation, I don't, I was pretty honest with him. It's like, I don't think that's going to be the thing that's going to work because there's not the infrastructure, there's not the focus, there's other things that need to happen before you're able to get to a point mm-hmm. to have that, to have those kind of, I think there's bigger priorities from a humanitarian level, depending on the, mm-hmm. the level of of development in that particular country. So I was pretty honest with him. And then my follow-up to that was, I was like, well, look, in a developing country where there's a focus on sport and fitness and health and the ministries or the governments are backed behind that, absolutely, I think there's a place for it (coughs) and it could really work. But if there's not a focus on that in the government of a developing country, I don't think it's going to work to the level that you're wanting it to. So that was probably Christmas Eve. And a couple of days after that, I got a phone call from him again. He said, okay, do you want a job when you graduate? I was like, um, yes, <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> Give me a job. What do, you, what do you want me to do? And he wanted to start a comprehensive clinic in the fitness, health, and wellness space in Grenada in the West Indies. So his best friend from university was Grenadian. And they had always had this dream of opening up a comprehensive clinic in Grenada. So he had decided, he met me, thought that my interest aligned with the person that they wanted down there. And it just was serendipity that a space opened up in one of the resorts there around the same time that they met me. So called me up, offered me a job. So at that point, (laughs) it was no longer going back to Vancouver. It was getting on an airplane shipping my stuff on a boat, <laughs> not knowing where I was going to be living and moving to the Caribbean. Well, and you must have been super excited. The, the I mean, to be honest, the initial reaction was, oh, it's not Vancouver. Okay. But um, <laughs> the follow-up reaction was, this is going to be really, really exciting. For sure. And it was a big responsibility that you had when you when you got there straight out of school? Did you feel that was a big responsibility? I, I did because I'm somebody that if I'm going to commit to something, I'm going to do it to my absolute fullest. So sure. I'm somebody that I'm quite intuitive and quite aware of what I do and don't like. And I'm not going to commit to something that I know I'm not going to fully be invested in. Yeah. So I think that I had a lot of personal pressure to um, excel in that role and to build it and get it to a point where it was sustainable and they were proud of it. And I think I put a lot of self-pressure on it, probably more so than they were putting on me, to be fair. Um, But I've always kind of been like that. It's usually that way. I think think it's usually that way. Yeah, I know. It's it's a bit crazy, isn't it? Um, I think that the bigger one was the fact that, like, I had worked in the health and fitness and sports space for quite a number of years. So I wasn't necessarily concerned about that side of things. Um, I think for me, it was more concerning to the, 
to the effect that I was, it was just me there. So mm-hmm. you're trying to kind of do teleconferencing with people in Miami. Trevor lived there. So that was my local boss. Um, but he's not a physio. So in terms of getting right out of school and making clinical decisions as an athletic trainer, or as some of the world knows as sport physio, then that's really difficult if you're the only one in terms of being able to trust yourself that your clinical decision making is on point. Yeah, I could understand that. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, Just shooting back to your experiences building houses, do you think that positively affected, like you felt more confident after that first trip and that led you to this taking the job in the Caribbean? Yeah, I think so. I think that the first trip was about learning. The second trip, it was about leading Mm -hmm. and showing by example. So I think both of those experiences definitely kind of gave me the confidence to be like, you know what, you can do this. You can go be somewhere totally alone. You don't know anybody. The difference here is you know the language fluently because it's an English speaking island. So you can communicate really well. Um, go and do it. But yes, I definitely think that those experiences in El Salvador helped. Grenada is also a developing country. So there was a lot of parallels in terms of the lifestyles between those two countries. Um, So when I moved there, it wasn't completely new. Obviously, it's a different country. It's a different culture. The people are different. The language is different. The food is different. Mm -hmm. But when you get to take all of that off from a surface level and actually try to get into the culture and what makes the people tick and what makes them happy and sad. They were very similar types of vibes and the level of development and the morals and values of the cultures. Yeah. It sounds to me like you're big into giving back to humanity and the human race. And was that that your favorite Mm -hmm. part about your early experiences traveling just knowing you're going out and helping people uh, and making a difference in like in developing countries I think so Um, but I think it was also for me the open-mindedness to see what I could receive as well I think that a lot of people when they're traveling they go if if they're going on more humanitarian or helping or support missions whatever you want to call it if mm-hmm. they're going with that as the primary focus, I think that a lot of times people can kind of get stuck in this mental mental state of I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving. And I think that that type of mentality can sometimes block them off from the receiving bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just as important. So being open-minded about what those cultures and those people can teach you and what you can learn from them. Because yeah. It's, I remember it so vividly. It was the first, it was, it would have been my second trip to El Salvador. We had done all of this donations for sporting equipment and this and that. And, you know, we were taking jerseys and balls and soccer cleats and soccer boots and all of this stuff down there in giant hockey bags. And we were taking them and we donated it all. And we, I remember feeling so positive about that because we've donated all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to Grenada and I was volunteering with a soccer foundation there, I realized that we were tr- focusing so much on what we were giving, but not actually taking that second step to think about the potential ramifications of that or thinking about what the receiving could come from. And what I mean by that is when I was living in Grenada and I was volunteering for this foundation, they had all sorts of donations, but 
I think what people don't realize if they don't take the time to receive and listen is in that example of donations, all of those donations, all that did is you've got a soccer ball. I don't. I want that soccer ball. It just causes conflict. So I think that that experience in El Salvador definitely helped prepare me, but it wasn't until I was in Grenada living there and actually living there as a local that I was able to learn the gift of receiving and listening and not just going there to be like, oh, I'm going to give, give, give. Yeah. Did they, was that someone told you that or you just sort of saw, as you said, with giving giving away the things for the sporting and the hockey and the football? Mm. Were you told that by locals or people that you met or you could just see it? In everyday life, like, I could, oh. Yeah, I could see it. So it was, I was volunteering for a soccer foundation. Um, so the Jason Roberts Foundation, he's a ex-premier player from the UK, and he moved down there about the same time I did. Mm-hmm. Um, he had to retire due to injury and had always had a dream of starting a branch of his foundation in Grenada. So his background's Grenadian. He was living in London, has a branch there, wanted to start one here. So I started coaching and volunteering with his foundation while he was uh, um, working with me in the clinic to try to get back from injury. And it was via that coaching that I saw it because we would have all these donations come in and my kids would get really, really excited. (laughs) And then you have to make the decision of who gets one and who doesn't. Yeah, Or does no one get it and it just stays with the club. And then if you give it to one, you see conflict and anger from another one. So it was, it wasn't so much that somebody told me as it was just, I was in it, I was in it and I was seeing it happen. And then as I was seeing it happen, I was like, okay, you know, Jason, there's got to be a better way to do this. What can we do? Um, And it was during those types of conversations that they made the decisions to come in rather than spending all this focus on donations let's focus on education let's bring in coaches and train local coaches because then you're transferring knowledge rather than materialistic goods you're transferring knowledge you're creating a job for somebody that's local that didn't have one before that can now teach other people um so it was just it was it was really interesting to kind of learn that gift of receiving and had i lived there with this mindset of, oh, look at me, look what I can bring. I can give these, I can give this, I can this. Um, That wouldn't have been as productive as actually listening and observing. And I think during that listening and observing, that's where you can really appreciate the gift of traveling and being in a position where you're privileged enough to travel. Mm -hmm. So what came in your decision to move on from the Caribbean? How long were you there for to start with, actually? How many years did you live there? So I was there a little more than a year. So I was there for about 14 months, 16 months in total. Um, And with that foundation, so with Jason Roberts Foundation, his dream was to start a branch for the Homeless World Cup and send a team to that tournament. It's a street soccer tournament that happens internationally. Each country has a team. Yeah, it's really cool. I'd heard of it before, but had never, <laughs> I didn't I didn't know too much about it. So his dream was to send a team from Grenada to that tournament. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be part of that inaugural year when we picked a team and then fortunate enough to travel with them as a medical staff member, as an athletic trainer, and then also assistant coach while we were there. 
And that was in 2000, that would have been 2015. That tournament was in Amsterdam. And I just remember being at that tournament and probably getting two to three hours of sleep for the <laughs> 10 days we were there and just right. loving life. I could not yeah. stop smiling. And for me, that was the time where I was like, you know what? I love athletic training. I love helping people, but mm -hmm. a clinical setting in a one-on-one -on -one fashion is not for me. I don't okay. feel like I can impact as many people as I can as if I'm working with teams or working with programs okay. or working in a community. So it was kind of twofold. It was a bit of a blessing in the sense of I acknowledged that while I was in Amsterdam working this tournament, got back to Grenada and the resort that we were working out of, um, they had a, a lot of different things go going on, some construction, et cetera, and the space that we are operating our clinic out of effectively ceased to exist. So our project was at a standstill. I'd recognized this aspect of myself that I wanted to kind of try something different. So made the decision that I would take a break. I'd go backpacking for a couple of months with the intention of going back to Grenada. And that would give us time to find a new location, really nut down what our focus of the project in Grenada was not have my bosses spending money to keep me there, spending money when we didn't have a location, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of, um, it was a mutual decision to take a little bit of a break. And then I went traveling. I started in Mexico visiting a friend that I had met at the Homeless World Cup. Um, started there and then made my way to Panama with the intention of spending about two months in Central America backpacking before going back. And then along the way, made the decision to not go back on a permanent <laughs> basis and was that a hard uh, decision? kept traveling. Yes and no. I think it was a hard decision giving up the security of a job there. Sure. It was yeah. a hard decision giving up the opportunity to really set in stone a project there with Ron and Trevor, my bosses, who are absolutely amazing people. And the reality is they gave me an am amazing opportunity straight mm -hmm. out of grad school. And I will forever be fortunate for them. So it was very difficult to, I, I don't view it as walking away as much as me being really honest with them about potentially me not being the right person for a one-on-one -on -one clinical setting. Okay. Um, so it was kind of, it was difficult because I felt like I was letting them down. But I also knew in my heart that that was the right decision for everybody involved. And so go on with your traveling when you went backpacking. So you, you obviously loved it because you wanted to keep going and going. And you started in Mexico and then Panama and then... Mm -hmm. So I was intending to do about two months. Um, mm -hmm. I started in Guadalajara in Mexico. I was there for 10 days before flying to Panama. Um, I just kind of, I decided to start in Guadalajara because I had a friend there, but then also just start there as a base, plan my trip. It, was a, it wasn't a planned trip, um, right. so I hadn't planned anything. So I spent time to plan it and then flew to Panama with this, this, you know, this plan of what I was going to do on a day-to-day -day basis for the next two months. And mm -hmm. my plan went out the window on day two. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so I got to Panama and met a group of people in the hostel there that were just wonderful humans. And I was like, okay, nice. what are we doing today? Let's, yeah. let's figure it out together. So you had it in what way did you have it all planned out? Okay. Did you know 
each uh, tourist attraction and things you wanted to see in each city, you were going to go to different cities on different days and everything booked up and everything, or you just, you had a basic plan in your head and you were going to, and then it just sort of went out the window after a couple of days. Yeah. So I had an Excel spreadsheet and <laughs> okay. the lonely planet guy, Central okay. America. All you had to do uh, was say Excel and lon- spreadsheet. Lonely I, <laughs> I was like, all right. Lonely yep. Planet, tell me what to do. Tell okay. me if I'm going Panama North and I've got two months, what do I do? So that's what okay. I had done. I had gone through Lonely Planet and I was like, yep, I want to do that, 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 that. Um, for me, I'm a huge nature person. So nature attractions were huge on my list. Mm-hmm. Kind of the big city party scene wasn't huge on my list. So my okay. itinerary had broken it down not I guess specific days I'm doing this and this but a general time frame of being in each country and that general time frame went out the window at day two did you feel like you didn't want like you didn't want to lose these people you just met or you wanted to spend more time with them get to know them better and if you just gone off on your own was that a big part of why you stayed with them Yeah, I think um, the group that I had met, they were traveling south. So they were going the opposite direction I was. Mm -hmm. So they had kind of, they'd already done it. So hearing them talk about, okay, we enjoyed this, we didn't enjoy this. um, That was actually hugely helpful. And that was a fantastic lesson for me to learn is rather than planning it out, talk to the people that are going the opposite direction from you. And then listen to them (laughs) because that can give you a good indication because who knows, right? Lonely planet could have been written and then that hostel is now closed. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So that's true. um, That, that was one factor was trying to, was really trying to utilize their information from literally having just been there. The second reason was they were a group from London and I had kind of just come from there from the homeless world cup. We had stopped in London at the foundations branch in London. So we talked a little bit about that and I just really connected with them as people. And I wasn't ready to just kind of do a high and buy situation. I wanted that. Yeah. I wanted that connection to last as long as it could possibly last in the sense of going two different directions and only having probably 48 to 72 hours, but that's a super meaningful interaction. Yeah, I think it's very true what you say about talking to people when you're traveling because more often than not, people who are traveling, especially the way they were doing it, traveling down a country, they're usually very open-minded people who like to talk to other people and like to get to know and learn new things because that's what this lifestyle attracts that sort of person, I think. So you'll always find people like that to talk to. And how was it traveling with them? You made some lifelong friends traveling it, it was it's interesting like friends when you meet when you're traveling I think they fall into a couple of categories they fall into the we have connected very shortly very briefly mm-hmm. but we're going to be friends for life or they fall into the category of this is a very positive meaningful interaction for me now but once we leave this physical presence with each other we're probably never going to speak again right. and that's not negative it's not just the reality so those particular friends, um, those were definitely friends of a 72-hour friendship, but <laughs> made a huge impact. They like they came from a totally different world than me. They were working in the music scene, music festivals, et cetera, et cetera. I'd never been in that world in terms they of like working to party one. And things like that. 
yeah they like to party so, and you know yeah. we went on a hike and they're like we just want to get to the party and i'm like look at the waterfalls okay. like, so um, <laughs> just that was a brief interaction but what you learn from that interaction when there's people that are so different from you is a lifelong impact mm -hmm. just not a lifelong friendship okay and most of the people you were traveling with they were like that they rushing to get back to the party what what do you think drew them to you drew you to them or both ways what do you mm -hmm. think was it an opposite to track situation or what you could learn from each other or you just just hit it off I think it was probably both. I think one of the main factors was the fact that I speak Spanish um, and they didn't. <laughs> so that was a big factor. Yeah. So I, I found that I attracted a lot of travelers that did not speak any Spanish because they could utilize me for the language. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I like practicing. I'm by no means fluent, but comfortable not speaking English in a Spanish speaking country and I'll be fine. Yeah. So I think that's part of it in terms of me being drawn to them. Um, I think it was, I just haven't, in, I like hearing people's stories. I think that's what it is. It's, yeah, it wasn't as much a conscious decision of just, you know, I want to hear your story. Mm. Okay. And the rest of your trip backpacking was great. And then where'd you head off to after that? So from Panama, I went very briefly to Costa Rica. So I hadn't intended to spend much time there. Um, only ended up spending, I probably spent about five days in Costa Rica at that time. That was a really expensive country to travel in Central America. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't plan this trip, so I didn't have a huge disposable income. So my plan was to get through Costa Rica as quickly as I could. Um, and then met a couple of friends in Costa Rica that I traveled with. One of them I traveled with for about a week. The other one I traveled with for about two and a half, three weeks. So we made it through Costa Rica and then into Nicaragua and was there in total for about a, about a month in total. So I spent Christmas and New Year's there um, before continuing on to Guatemala and then to Mexico and Belize. Because I'd already been to El Salvador, I, I just bust through it. I, I didn't feel like I needed to spend the time there opposed to other locations that I hadn't been um, and I also just bust through Honduras. So I was really wanting to scuba dive in U uh, Roatan and Utila, but that would have meant either I had to fly there, which I didn't have money for, or bus across the entire country on land, which my family wasn't comfortable with. So I made the decision okay. to respect that <laughs> and skip that um, and just kind of went through it. As you were traveling, were you building a plan as you were going along of what was going to happen after you'd finished traveling? And when you wanted to go back to maybe a more sustained job? and Yeah, so my, my plan was when I started my trip was to go back to Grenada. My plan was to spend two months backpacking and then yeah. go back to Grenada, get their project to a point where it was sustainable. Um, and then depending on the direction that the project was going to go, stay there longer term or not. That was my plan. Once mm -hmm. I started traveling, I just fell in love with traveling and the experiences and started realizing more and more that that clinical setting probably wasn't for me on a permanent long-term basis. But I was still planning to go back. Um, in Costa Rica, I, I met my ex-boyfriend, so I met him there. And um, 
we traveled together for about three weeks. He ended up, he's from Australia. So he ended up having to come back here because he was at the end of his travels. And, yeah. and then I kept, I kept going. So we kept in touch uh, just as friends for about another month. And then long story short, we came to the decision that we wanted to kind of explore what that interaction sure. and relationship was with me mm -hmm. being in Australia. So once we kind of made that decision, I applied for a working holiday visa because I'm very independent and I didn't want to be reliant on anybody. So got that granted, uh, gave my notice for my job in Grenada, and then decided to keep traveling until I ran out of money. Um, there was a funeral I had to be back in the States for before moving to Australia. So that was kind of my timeline was travel until I run out of money slash yeah. when that funeral is, and then I would go. So that's how my two months turned into four months is yeah. I got a working holiday visa for Australia and then just kept going until I ran out of money. And that was, that's a full year, the Australian holiday visa. Yep. So that one, you can get it, you can apply for it before you turn 30 mm -hmm. and then it's good for a year once you land. So it's not once it gets granted, it's once you actually enter the country. Mm-hmm. And when you say you moved to Australia, was it directly to Sydney? Yes. So I went directly. So I kept traveling in Central America till I ran out of money, went back to Oregon first, mm -hmm. then Boston, then Grenada again to get all of my stuff because all of my stuff was still right. there. Right. Um, so I went back to Grenada for about two weeks in total, sold a bunch of my stuff slash shipped a bunch of my stuff back home. Um, what I could get on the airplane actually. And then went up to Boston for a funeral and to say goodbye to my family, then hopped on a plane to Australia. And here I am. So I went directly to Sydney. Um, that's where my ex-boyfriend was living. So that was the logical place to start mm -hmm. and haven't left. <laughs> and what was your plan when you got there? Because it doesn't sound like you had a a uh, job lined up or anything like that? Were you just going to go job hunting when you got there in Sydney? So I had applied to quite a few jobs before I got here. Um, I'm a fitness instructor and personal trainer. So I was looking in the fitness space. Athletic training isn't recognized as a profession in Australia. So I wasn't able to work as an athletic trainer, which is what I went to school for, but I still had all the fitness and training for personal training background. So I was applying mostly to fitness centers and gyms. Um, so applied to probably about 10 of them, heard back from a couple of them, not others, didn't realize until I got to Sydney that the fitness industry is gigantic here. And then sure, once yeah. I got here, basically just walked up and down the streets of Sydney, going into any gym I could find, being like, hey, <laughs> this is my resume. Let me work for you. Yeah. And I just happened to walk into a gym in North Sydney that I walked in and I did exactly that. I said, hey, here's my resume. This is my background. Are you hiring? And it just happened that the personal training manager at the time was there. He's like, yes, we are actually. <laughs> Let's have mm -hmm. a chat. So he walked me a couple of blocks to the next gym, which was the branch that they were looking to hire somebody at had an interview and 12 hours later had a full-time job. That's awesome. Was that a few weeks after you got there or a few days or how long did that 
take to come together? That's that was about a week after I got there. So a probably a week from landing at the airport to starting my first shift. How did you find your early days in Australia? From coming from traveling and then going home and packing up and then coming yeah. and living uh, I found in one it, city. And... <laughs> it was super difficult. Um, okay. I had gone from living in a developing country where mm-hmm. the longest straight road was less than a half a kilometer long right. and there was no two lanes in each direction roads and the island had 110,000 people on it to Sydney. Um, so I definitely had culture shock when I moved yeah. here, kind of reverse culture shock because it was just so busy and there's so many people and everyone is stressed and everyone is always rushing to everything but they're always late anyway and no one ends up doing anything because there's event (laughs) fatigue and there's too many things to do and i was like what is going on everyone just live the island life just calm down just relax (laughs) so i definitely had a rough adjustment okay and that was did did you consider or maybe i made the wrong decision here maybe i shouldn't have come or you still had your boyfriend there and you were happy and sort of building a relationship there and it was just like, I have to get used to this now. I think it, it was a couple of different emotions. In the first emotion was, oh, this is so exciting. I've always dreamed of coming to Australia. And now I'm finally here. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the first initial reaction. Then a very quick follow-up reaction was, I don't fit into the box here that a lot of these okay. people seem to be living into. What am I doing? Yeah. I've made the wrong decision. Take me back to the island. Mm. Um And then I think another reaction was very much of the reality is, is my ex-boyfriend and I, we had traveled together for three weeks and then did long distance for another three months before I even got here. So it was, I think that we both came in with the understanding that it was either going to go, you know, I move here and it's great and, and it's fantastic and you're building this lifelong relationship. That's option one. Option two is you get here and you get along great, but you're not supposed to be living together directly after three months of tra- or three months of long distance, only knowing each other for three weeks. Right. That's option two. Or option three is you get here and you're like, you know what? We're just not the right people for each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that we were very realistic with the possibility of all three of those options being on the table. And we were both very honest with each other once it was quite apparent that it was option three was the case was we just weren't the right people when you're in a consistent location. Yes. So we were the right people for the the time traveling, like our travel yeah. vibes matched fantastically, but just different people. And I think that when I first moved here, it was difficult to kind of try to be fitting into this box of what the perfect person for him was, mm-hmm. knowing that that wasn't me. So it was kind of this this weird push and pull of, all right, I've made this giant decision to move here to explore yes. this interaction with this person, and I want to give it my all, but then I'm trying to fit into a box that I don't fit into. Yes. Should I be doing that or should I not be doing that? I don't know. But in the same breath, it's it, there was a feeling of, almost a feeling of guilt of, well, if I don't try to fit into that box, 
it wouldn't have been possible for me to move here without them. So then am I being ungrateful, not trying to fit into this box? So my transition to Sydney was quite rough. Sounds um, like it, yes. <laughs> by no one's fault of my own. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we were both quite honest and realistic about it. And we had an honest conversation about it. And, you know, if if I see him tomorrow on the street, I will happily say hi and we'll catch up. But yeah. the reality is we are just different people when you're permanently in the same location. But that's a lot of stress to deal with coming to a new country and then having this relationship that you're trying to build and then also not feeling like mm-hmm. you might not fit into Sydney and fit into this big city lifestyle and then mm-hmm. starting a new job and even if you're the most confident person in the world, there's still a bit of nerves and hesitation before starting a new job and going in and wanting to be the best at that as well and then coming home and having to try and build a relationship that you're hoping will work but you're not sure it'll fit and it's just a lot you had to deal with in the early days, I guess. Did that, yes. did that eventually just subside and then you just sort of settling in more and more and you realize maybe I am I do belong here and I can do this. I think that like finding my job was the first time where I felt like I belonged. So I'm working as a director for a social sport company here in Sydney. And the whole idea is getting people active, creating connections, making friends through sport. And that ultimately, that ethos and that vision is why I decided to leave Grenada in the first place. That the vibe that we're creating and I've found in my job is exactly the vibe that I found at the homeless world cup in Amsterdam. So in that sense, for me, I feel like I belong in the job. Like it's the job that is keeping me here, not Sydney. And I'm so incredibly grateful that I found this job because it's, it's, I love it. It doesn't feel like a job because I wake up every single day, loving what I do and loving the people I work with. I'm inspired by them. So I don't, do I fit into Sydney? Probably not. (laughs) But do I fit into the job and have the ability to create a lifestyle that I absolutely love here? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, I do. And you're a big time scuba diver as well. I am. So I started teaching scuba diving here in Sydney about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So I started diving when I was living in the Caribbean and moved here and started diving about uh, two years ago. So lived in Sydney for about two years without diving and then found some friends that dove and got in the water the first time (laughs) and I was freezing. But I'm like, oh, yep, this is where I'm supposed to be. What do I do now? How do I be here all the time? Was it love at first dive when you're in the Caribbean? It just clicked? I actually hated it. It um, (laughs) (laughs) terrified me. So I got like... I got my scuba diving license when I was living in Miami, knowing that I was going to be moving to the Caribbean. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm this nature loving child. I want to explore underneath the water if I'm working on a Caribbean beach. Let me do that. And for anyone that's ever taken scuba diving or done their course, I tell you the mask skills are the absolute worst. So (laughs) if you've got any sort of background of claustrophobia or whatever, anyway, it took my... In my course, it took me about an hour crying and swearing at my instructor in the shallow end of the pool to do that skill once. Um, so I hated it when I started, okay. but I was determined. I was determined to explore the underwater world in the mm-hmm. Caribbean. So I fought through that and fast forward, what, be 
eight years later and I'm, I'm teaching it to people. When did it start to click? How long did it take for you to sort of start being, okay, this is awesome. I've actually, I've overcome this fear and yeah. claustrophobia or whatever you felt. It was dive number nine. Okay. So dive number nine, my first eight dives, I did not enjoy at all. Okay. And I forced myself to get it back in the water. But dive number nine, I think, I don't know what about it it was, but I was just down there and I was like, you know what? As long as I can breathe, everything else is fine. We can fix mm -hmm. everything else underwater as long as I yeah. can breathe. And I'm breathing yeah. just fine. And look at all the pretty things. Yeah. Um, so I think it was, it wasn't so much a conscious decision of just something in my mind clicked and reminded myself that you're okay. It's okay, mm -hmm. Linz, just enjoy it. That must've been a proud moment for you to overcome that. Yeah, it, I think it was because it was this constant inner fight. It was the first yeah. thing I'd ever done in my really life where it was relief, like, yeah. Yeah, my brain logically knew what to do. And for some reason, my mind was like, nah, <laughs> you're not going to do this. That anxiety come up a little bit when you started to explore more advanced diving in the sense that if you go out at night, it's a whole different experience. And maybe your anxiety kicked up a little bit again. Did you feel that way? It's that's a very interesting question because I think a lot of people do if you get into night diving or wreck diving um, or cave diving, you have that extra element of risk associated with it. But for me, I found that if I had something to focus on, mm -hmm. I wasn't as anxious. So okay. like if I'm going down for a dive and I'm just going with someone I totally trust and we're just going for a dive. Sometimes I'll get in this mental cyclone of being like, okay, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And you just get into these thought spirals. But if I've got students or if I'm diving at night or if I'm going on a wreck dive or if I have my camera and I'm taking pictures down there, there's something else to focus on rather than the thoughts inside your head. So for me, one of the things I love about diving is it's that it's, it's like a moving meditation. It's the one thing where you're not attached to technology because unless you're there with me you mm -hmm. can't access me and i love that yeah. i love that detachment from the world that we live in that's constantly reliant on technology and social media and materialism and superficiality and comparisons but when you're under the water it's just you and your breath and mm -hmm. i love that so there's definitely an added risk when you implement some of these other things but for me i find it's a lot it's a lot more calming because I have to focus on those things rather yeah. than the constant thoughts going on in my head. Right, that makes sense. It's funny you say that about meditation because when I was working mm. at a Great Barrier Reef in Early Beach, we'd go out and I used to dive with this guy and he'd love to go down to the bottom and let all his air out of his uh, BC and he'd mm -hmm. just sit on the ground and meditate on the sand. Like when during good yeah. visibility, he'd just close his eyes and meditate. And he said, it's like the most peaceful he'd ever out. be. Yeah, just chill out. And it's yeah. exactly the same way you say, except he does it in an actual, mm. the like traditional meditation, meditative way, I guess you could say. Right. Did you ever join him? Yes. Uh, we had groups where we'd go down, <laughs> there's like four of us. And sometimes we'd take certified divers to sit on the bottom if Amazing. they were interested in it. He was very, he swore by it. So he'd tell every certified diver yeah. we had, hey, you should come try this if you want. Like, it's not going to cost you anything extra. It'd just be fun. They go down cool. below the pontoon, mm -hmm. sit there and meditate. And I was never a huge meditator until, you know, recent years where I've done it quite a bit. But uh, yeah. 
Yeah, when I I mean, I just love being underwater. So for me, I didn't think it was a meditative light sitting there with your eyes closed, counting to 10, trying to focus on your breath. Whereas I thought it was just so cool to be underwater and just be in a group and For like sure. with a nice vibe between everyone because they're all such like peaceful. Anyone who wants to try it uh, has mm-hmm. a very peaceful mindset about it. No one's going down there to hunt for fish or anything. So, yeah, no, I really enjoyed true. it. Very true. Amazing. Uh, so that's your experience in Australia. Have you got big plans to, or not big plans, but have you got plans to move on to different countries or have you thought about it at all? Keep exploring the world? <laughs> Or go back a backpack again, maybe? Yeah, I definitely want to keep exploring. I think for me, I'm very fortunate that the current visa that I'm on has a pathway to permanent residency here in Australia. So my my plan, if we want to talk about a plan, is to hopefully get permanent residency. Hopefully Australia wants to keep me a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And I view that as giving me the freedom of choice. So whilst I'm American by passport, my hope is to be able to have permanent residency here in Australia, which would legally give me the opportunity to live in either place without much difficulty. And I don't view that as making a conscious decision of I'm going to be in Australia for the rest of my life, or I'm definitely going back to the States is more of having that freedom of choice. So in terms of plans, my plan is to get permanent residency. My plan is to continue working in a job that I absolutely love continue to be a tourist in my own city because there's so much more in Sydney and surrounding areas to explore. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also utilize my annual leave and my time that I'm able to take off, whether it be paid or unpaid to go and travel. That's definitely something that's always going to be a part of my life. Um, I think it's interesting when people talk about travel because I think there's a lot of people that will go on vacation for a week or two weeks and they're like, yeah, I've traveled. But it's interesting because for me, I, I don't view that as traveling in the sense that I want it to be. I view that as visiting, but not actually getting to know a place. And for me, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And it's when I was living in Chile, that's when I started thinking about it like this, because I had some friends there that like, you know, uh, English doesn't have all of the words to fully explain what to know means, but Spanish does. And yeah. they were Spanish speaking friends. So they're like, you know, you can know a place in the yeah. sense of I've visited there. I know that place. Mm-hmm. Or you can know a place in the sense of I've lived there. Yeah, I've been I there. The I know the yeah. people. I know the culture. And mm-hmm. for me, traveling isn't yeah, I visited there. It's I know that place in in all of the senses. So I think it's it is definitely always going to be a part of my life. But travel for a week or two here or there, probably not. Okay. Um, I would rather you know I'd rather work twenty four seven to accumulate a bunch of leave and then go on an epic journey where I'm actually getting to know the culture. Yeah. Do you think there's a sizable difference between? the experience of traveling alone and the experience of traveling in a group or in a couple? I do. I do think there's a huge difference. I, except for those three weeks with my ex-boyfriend traveling, I've only done solo travels. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, my family would travel. So I've, I've traveled with my family, but in terms of like going on an epic trip with friends, that's something I personally have never done. So I can't, 
I can't speak to it from a personal standpoint. The closest I've gotten is my brother and his best friend came to live with me in Grenada for a month and a half when I was living there. So albeit I was local, we were still having that viewpoint of being a tourist in your own city. So we were still traveling and my brother's my best friend. So the two of them and me, the three of us were frolicking all over the island exploring (laughs) and that was fantastic. But I definitely think there's a huge difference. And it, for me, I, I'd say it's more of a difference of when you're alone, I think you've got this opportunity to make a decision, right? You can make the mm-hmm. decision of I'm going to go and travel and I'm going to be 100% unapologetically me. Yeah, That's option one. Option two is you can go and you can be whoever you decide you want to pretend you are. And I think it's really interesting when you're traveling alone because there's actually no one putting pressure on you to make that decision except yourself. So I think there's a lot of people that go to travel to discover themselves. But in their discovery, I often wonder if it's that discovery of actually, okay, I'm going to reinvent myself into who I think I want to be. Or if it's a, I'm going to embrace myself for, for me and not apologize for that. And for me, I chose option one. So I chose I'm going to be 100% unapologetically me and you can take it or leave it. But why pretend to be anything except me because there's only one version of me. So I think traveling alone gives you the opportunity to do that when you're traveling with somebody that you know, they already know you as whatever version you've chosen to portray to the world already. Yeah, so I don't think it allows you that opportunity to make the choice of I'm going to be me or I'm going to, quote, reinvent myself to this person I want to be. Um, I haven't had that personal experience, but I I can only speak from when my brother was living with me, like his best friend became, you know, my kind of adopted brother by by default. But I think that for him personally, my brother would have had a totally different experience had his best friend not been with him because he would have been able to fully embrace the opportunity to figure out or embrace whichever choice he chose who he was without having this unspoken pressure to continue to be the person his best friend knew him as. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that there's a right or a wrong. I think it's just, I think that the trouble comes when people aren't intuitive enough with themselves to know if their overseas travel should be alone or with somebody else. Yeah. I think there's a definitely a level of comfort knowing that you're going to go from Australia and go travel through Spain or something like, Oh, I'm going with my best friend. So yeah. I'll have that like comfort factor, but it's like a whole mm-hmm. different experience to go by yourself. And like you said, you can just grow so much as a person from that or realize that, you're yeah you can be totally 100% yourself like what what, what you said was 100% true and I couldn't agree more with the, mm. the differences between both of those experiences one's not wrong and one's not right it's just depends what you want to get out of an experience I guess in a sense yeah absolutely and I think you you know you have that choice you can because you can if you if you show up at a hostel and nobody knows who Lindsay yeah. is I can be whoever I possibly want to be yeah but and that's that's cool. If I want to totally reinvent myself, that's cool. I chose not to do that because it wasn't authentic. It didn't feel genuine. And 
Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to land there, but I like the person I am. So why do I yeah. want to be somebody different? I don't, I want people to like me for me. And if they don't like me, that's totally fine too. Because the other thing is I think traveling also teaches you that you're not going to get along with everybody no, and that's okay. Not. And it's totally fine. And there's no pressure for it because there's going to be somebody else that's perfect for them. That's very true. Overall, of your experiences living abroad, what would you think is your favorite part about the experience? I think that for me, it's the appreciation of where you've come from, but also having an appreciation for an open-mindedness of what other people can show you. So Mm -hmm. it's that receiving, as I kind of said at the beginning, it's, it's for me, traveling really gave me a reaffirmation that everybody's journey is different but if i can make one person smile my day has been worthwhile and in Mm -hmm. the same breath if i can learn one thing from an interaction whether that be you know a glance of an eye or if it be a conversation it doesn't matter but every little fleeting moment that you have with people has this profound ability to impact your life if you let it and i think for me i wouldn't yeah people fantastic culture fantastic the you know, nature, all of these adventures, new experiences, fantastic. But I think for me, it was being in those moments, whether it be completely surrounded with people or completely alone in nature, where I just took a moment to pause and be like, this is it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I am, I am living and I am open to whatever knowledge, gifts, words of affirmation, whatever your love language is, like whatever is coming my way. I'm open to it. Um, so I think that for me, it wasn't a particular person or thing. It was more just that feeling of I'm I'm open and the world is not. I don't like the idea of borders, right? Like it's fluid. It's it's the world is never going to go away. But if people are steadfast and I'm only going to cross into this border, it limits your ability to receive the gifts that the world has to offer. How much of who you are and the way that you are now, do you, do you credit to your childhood and the way that you were raised? And how much do you think it's just who you were born as, as a person? Are you a sum of your experiences? Do you consider it like that? Or do you consider it mm-hmm. sort of a difficult question, I guess, but, or do you consider like it? It's a nature, nature versus nurture question here. That's right. Um, Yeah, I think that everyone is born with this inherent curiosity. And I think that as we grow up as children, if we're in an environment that is able to foster that curiosity and that creativity and allow you to explore and allow you to make mistakes and not beat down on you for those mistakes, but allow those mistakes to be learning out of genuine curiosity, Mm -hmm. That is the type of upbringing I had. My parents were very much, you know what, make a decision, go and do it and learn from it. We might not agree with your decision, but you're going to learn from it. So they really fostered this sense of curiosity. And I think that had I not grown up with family who was supportive of my curiosity, even if they didn't agree with it, (laughs) I don't think I would be where I am right now. I think that I would be constantly questioning, is this the right choice? Is this the right choice? Is this the right choice? Rather than being like, you know what? I have no idea what is in the 
end of that dark alley, but I'm going to go and find out because I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes that dark alley can open up to a giant, you know, whatever giant ocean or this star stricken skyline, or it can come to a wall. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're not curious enough to figure out what's in the end of the dark tunnel, uh, you're not going to know that. And I was fortunate to have a family that didn't stifle my curiosity growing up. So I definitely think that for me, it was, I, it's nature because I do think you're born with curiosity, but it's nurture and the ability to actually empower that in a kid or stifle that. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. You got some great answers on this podcast. Oh, thank you. You got some good questions, you know? Oh, thank you. We're getting down to the, the end now. I was just a few more questions. Do you have mm-hmm. a favorite country that you visited that you would recommend people visit? I, I absolutely love Nicaragua. And if my boss listens to this, she's going to laugh because they make fun of me for how I pronounce that word because they don't speak Spanish. But yeah. I loved that country. It's, I think it gets a bit of a bad, I'm going to say air quotes, bad rep um, in terms of danger or perceived danger, but I think that's just a media portrayal. I was Mm -hmm. there for about six weeks in total and the culture, the people, the landscape, the language, the food, everything about it was spectacular. Um, I think part of the reason I really loved it as well, it's, it's one of those kind of unsung hero countries in the sense of People think it's dangerous, so they avoid it. So it's not crazy packed with people, which is which is my travel vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have the opportunity to go there, I would hands down recommend it without a doubt. Great. Uh, what's your best piece of advice you can give to someone who's interested in the lifestyle? Not even necessarily the same lifestyle you've had, but just breaking the borders down from your life and where you live and where you grew up feel like, hey, maybe I want to go live in a different country or live in a different culture for a while. What bit of advice would you give to someone in that situation? Yeah, I would give them the advice that if it's in your mind, do it and stop asking Mm -hmm. the question of why not and ask yourself, if your answer is I don't have the time or they don't have the money, there's things to fix both of those equations. But what you can't do it you can't go back in Mm -hmm. time and do something you wish you had done. So if it's in your mind, even a fragment go and you could go and get there. And after two days, you're like, you know what, this isn't for me. And that's totally fine. But if you don't take the step out the door, you're never going to have that opportunity to say it's not for me. And then you're constantly going to be wondering what if, and I think what if is Mm -hmm. a really dangerous spot to get into. So if you're thinking about it, just, just go. Stop yeah. listening to the people telling you why not and just say, well, yeah, yeah, regret. It's a strong emotion. And I think that the other thing is remind yourself that you're doing something that yeah. everybody else is scared to do. Not everybody, because there are people that do yeah. it, but you're you're choosing to take ownership of your life journey. And that's... Yeah. Do you have any travel tips? Anything you picked up along the way that... Always pack less than you want to. <laughs> the it is brutal to go somewhere and then have like a giant bag and then you find these amazing souvenirs or even better, you meet these amazing people that want to gift you things. And if gifts are your love language, you want to take them, but you have no space. So like lay everything out 
and then cut it down by 75% Mm -hmm. or halfway if you possibly can. Um, The other recommendation I'd say is take a journal. I know that sounds ridiculous, but take something that you can write things down because even if it's somebody's phone number or email or name, I've got one person that I reach out to now six years later in the world of athletic training. He's in Japan. I don't know him. I've never actually met him, but I met a friend of his in a hostel in Panama who's like, I think the two of you would get along. And the connections that you make while traveling, if you have nothing to write it down, they're lost forever. So take something to write something down. And then don't go with a dead set plan. Be open to the possibility that Mm -hmm. things might not go correctly or set to your plan and be okay with that. And do you recommend the experience of living abroad from your home country? Absolutely. I I was fortunate to live in a couple different countries, some that are English speaking and some that are not. And each of them have their own gifts. But if you've got the ability and the opportunity, take it. Do you have any more bits of advice to give the people at home? Don't hesitate to ask questions. Like I think that that's we're we're always scared of feeling like it's a silly question or people are going to judge you or whatever, but if you've got a question or you're curious, reach out to the person that you think can answer that. And if it's me, if it's Chris, whoever it's going to be, or if it's someone else, if it's someone you're, you know, your best friend and you're like, I've always wanted to ask them this, but I'm scared to just ask the question. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's, it gets back to that curiosity, right? You're curious to learn and people, I think the other thing is people like telling their stories because it makes mm-hmm. them feel important. And as yeah. much as we do or don't want to, humans are ego and some people embrace Absolutely. that more or less. So by asking a question, you're actually, you're playing on that, right? It makes people feel good. Mm-hmm. Oh, they want to know something yeah. from me. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's very true. I skipped over this before, but I feel like in my situation, it feels like an addictive lifestyle to lead, to live away, not even away from home, to just traveling and seeing new things and just having new experiences, it feels addictive. And then when you're sort of stagnant in a, not set stagnant, but sort of in one place for a while, you sort of get a bit uh, jumpy and you want to get back out there again. Did you find it to be quite addictive? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I think it's, I mean, when I, when I got my visa granted here for Sydney and to stay in Australia, I remember it so distinctly because I called my stepdad on the phone and I was like, Matthew, my visa got granted and I just started crying and he's like that's so exciting I'm like it means I'm stuck here and (laughs) I I didn't I didn't view it as this good thing it was like I viewed this as it being locking and my boss and I had a good chat about that and we moved past it we worked through it but then even when I got to the point where this is the longest I've been in the same job in my life Mm -hmm. that was also quite confronting and I got itchy feet again But I think that what I keep coming back to is you don't have to board a plane to travel. And it took me being in Sydney for this long to recognize that, like, I can walk out the door and turn a different direction than I did yesterday and go down a street I've never been down before. That's cool. So I think it, it really took me a long time to get out of this kind of stereotypical idea of traveling means I need to get in on an airplane or in a car. 
and mm-hmm. really embrace the fact that traveling at its root is about adventure and about ex- exploration and curiosity. And that can happen at your doorstep if you allow it to. But I mm-hmm. think that we get stuck in this idea that, oh, I need to go. I need my passport. I need this. I need this. But walking down mm-hmm. your street can be an adventure if you allow it to be. That's very true. Well, Lindsay, you've been such a great guest. I really appreciate you having come on. This has been Thank really fun. Thank you for inviting me. It's been, a, it's been a blast. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Of course. Very, very, very happy to have you on. And it's been my first international podcast. So we've had some trouble setting up, but in the end we got there. And I think it's been a really inspiring chat. And I feel like I've learned from you just myself. So it's been really nice. And I'm glad that you decided to come on. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's been, um, yes, technology can be a pain, but it's we got there in the end and it's the teamwork and I've learned from you as well. So I do definitely appreciate it. And I hope that this is just the start of many more international stories for you. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you, Lindsay. You're welcome. Thank you.